0: Oh, let's see, let's see something interesting. Oh, well there was a uh, my my mother-in-law had a brief um clearing of understanding when it came to what the US actually cares about as far as the news cycle. Nice. <laughs> because uh you know the the war in Russia and Ukraine is going on.
1: It's getting kind of boring um, though, so
0: <laughs> sure. <laughs> And so, but you know, like they're they're, she flips through, she watches local news, and they watch like a bunch of uh, Japanese news and stuff like that. She was a CNN Plus it.
1: subscriber, was she? No, oh, no, so she, she wasn't. didn't. She didn't have to like go through the withdrawals of not having it after only having
0: it for three weeks. Uh, well, no, they actually had CNN for, boy, maybe. Over 10 years at their house in Tokyo, and it wasn't until Miho was like, what's this button on the remote do that they realized they had been paying for, like, all of the cable (laughs) channels (laughs) for years and just never knew how to access them. Oh, yes. Ah, yes. Technology. It's something that the Japanese haven't figured out yet. (laughs) There's a lot of buttons sometimes, you know? Uh, So... She's getting the you know reports on how important the news cycle thinks that the uh, Ukraine Russia war is going, and I, I don't know if you know this, but like uh, Japan and Russia have disputed islands. Yes, like they they do pretty much touch each other. Um, so Russia has always been. I mean, you can go before like World War Two. And there's there are wars with Japan and Russia going mm-hmm. back and forth over land. Um well I think I think it was this past weekend, maybe it was may on Friday or something last week, but there was a tourist boat that was going out in Hokkaido and uh just sank. And like everyone on board died. <laughs> and just like for no reason sank, like it wasn't um accosted by winds or weather. I mean it seems that like that's what they're thinking but it's a tourist boat that's going out between these waters and everything and it was like 11 children were on the boat like there's it's pretty common I think especially up in like around Hokkaido and stuff that there's not like a lot of nature because it's frozen half the year Mm -hmm. so like they do take you know kids out on these boats to like it, like a field trip, you know? Right, right. Um, So it, uh, yeah. And so they're thinking that it was like bad weather that it was going out in, but zero mention in the U.S. media. And she was like, why? I'm like, uh, they just don't care about some stuff. I don't know Well, what to tell well, you. Well, we'll create the rumor that it was down by a Russian
1: submarine, and then we'll talk about it.
0: Right, yeah. It, I mean, did it... <laughs> Really help, which one of my friends is like uh, convinced that Biden is trying to find a way to go to war with Russia, and I've I've not seen that signal at all from the White House. Like they no. seem like they're trying to be like, guys, listen, we gotta uh, chill out on all of this during the press briefings.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would definitely say that of anything, he's shown a lot more restraint. Which you know, benefit of having, I guess, him there than uh, Trump or someone else, you know, at and a time like this. Um, but still, like, there's not. There's also not a lot of uh, de-escalation efforts either. I, I but right. I, although I don't know what you would do to to de-escalate the situation rather than just being like, look stop your war of aggression russia here's half of ukraine
0: yeah i mean i'm not a big fan of the current administration but it i i i got to say i am surprised that they were not uh trying to act aggressively
1: right right i um it's one of those things where if we had a a bush in there it we would probably have troops on the ground and it's yeah. much, a much worse situation.
0: Yeah. So uh, that was one stark revelation in the Beale household. What's
1: never ending to so find the beginning? They came up for everything like kids with decor. So yeah, that was a good open and we didn't have to talk about, you know, the the new variants or anything in the open either. So that
0: was good boy did you see biden is uh like not gonna have the meal of the press correspondence dinner to lower the risk of covid because mm-hmm. uh they haven't really let you know but cases have doubled in the last month oh yeah and they're going rampant in europe um like beijing shut down right so uh, well they there's dealing with it
1: there is a the the metric that we've been following as far as uh hospitalizations and overwhelming the healthcare system since America gave up a long time ago, like day two of the pandemic on actually like testing and tracing and trying to do like any kind of um, avoidance efforts, like any kind of efforts that would have been like a zero COVID type of effort. Um, and now we're just happy to just kind of try to live with it. Um, so the only real metric that matters at this point is kind of uh looking at how bad the hospital situation is and then letting that be the determining factor on whether people should maybe chill out um so that the hospitals don't get so overwhelmed that if you have a heart attack, you don't just die in your living room because they can't take you to the emergency
0: room. Right. Yeah. I so mean, it's-
1: but one but what I was saying is like at least from the East Coast that's really getting hit now in, like, the second week of these third variations of Omicron, um, the direct relationship of the huge spike in hospitalizations is not like what we saw earlier on in the pandemic. And um, so that, I think, gives credence to the fact that the people that who have gotten vaccinated and have gotten boosted it is preventing severe illness in those people, which would have resulted them in going to the hospital. And especially for the over 50 cohort, if they got their second booster, that is preventing them from having any severe illness, even though they might be contracting cases. Um, And that there is, if you got BA1, the original Omicron variant um, over Christmas, there is some sort of... um, immunity that protects you from the subsequent variant um, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily prevent you from having severe illness from the subsequent variant but there might be a little bit of a correlation there as far as um, a lot of people got sick and they're not going to get as sick this next time around that would require them to get and in, go into the hospital however in both the studies in Israel and the studies in Britain, it did show a higher severe case incidence rate for children under six years old than previous variants as well. So, and those kids don't have access to vaccines yet. And so there is an increase of hospitalization level cases amongst that younger group because they have no type of protection whatsoever.
0: It blows my mind when I go to the grocery store and see a family with kids and. Anyone over the age, looking the age of 12 is not wearing a mask, but they got like a five-year-old that's wearing a mask. It's like, what what do you think you're taking home with you?
1: Well, and I think that just goes also back to the very beginning of the big misinformation about masks from the start, and then a lot of people just not understanding the efficacy of masks and how it's more to prevent an infected person from spreading the virus they do very they don't do nearly as much as far as protecting the wearer from contracting the virus
0: right but it would help if uh, everybody was wearing it
1: right right which is now the problem when you go to the uh voluntary masking then people who are worried about getting sick wear a mask and the people who aren't concerned about spreading the virus don't wear a mask, which is the absolute inverse of what you want to happen.
0: <laughs> right. So glad we didn't have to talk about that.
1: Right. It's good. And I'm just happy that... Uh, well, the one thing I will say is that um, there was, you know, last week when they dropped the... Uh, traveling mandate for masks. And we saw all the videos of like the flight attendants being all happy about it and stuff on the planes. I, I want to say that this, I don't think they're happy, them being happy on those planes and having these parties or whatever about getting rid of masks is necessarily some sort of big anti-vax, anti-science statement. I think that is more of a societal system statement Like we talked about in the beginning of the pandemic, how instead of the actual people that are in positions of leadership and authority taking responsibility and making the calls that need to be made, they pushed responsibility down to the lowest level workers at all the places, whether that was the the hostess at the restaurant trying to enforce masking or the old lady that works. Concessions at the at the ballpark trying to enforce masking or the lowest paid people at an airline who are like the flight attendants being required to enforce masking. And I think the celebration aspect of that is probably much more about feeling the relief of having to be the policing for mechanism and having all the weight of the pandemic being shoved down to their lowest level in order for them to be responsible for maintaining this enforcement. And so I I empathize with them being relieved that they are no longer having to be the enforcers of this because no one else above them took the responsibility to do it.
0: It's liberalism, trickle-down responsibility. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> but... Possibly, through all of this, we'll uh, start to see people realizing, oh, if they're going to give us all the responsibility, then uh, maybe we can make the calls. Right.
1: M- maybe we're no different.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, what makes you different than the boss? Well, the boss just makes a dollar when you make a dime. That's the only difference.
1: Well, he knows how to turn your dime into two dollars, and so he gets to keep one of those dollars. Right? right. <laughs>
0: sure. not in any just society anyways speaking of just societies
1: so today um this is a a a thing that has been in in the back of my mind for years now but with all the crt stuff and everything over the last year and a half especially here in texas where we have uh seen an incredibly outsized level of banning of books and, um, actual, uh, type of lawsuits and, um, judicial effects against teachers already here in Texas, like outside compared to Florida compared to all over the rest of the country. Like Texas is running away with, uh, with the amount of cases and the number of books banned and all that type of stuff. Um. So but this it, it came around back around to full circle with my sort of longstanding uh, debate in my own head about the concept of parental rights. And now that that term is getting used a lot in, in regards to CRT and how kids get educated and all that type of stuff, it started uh, fomenting this argument much more in my mind. So this this episode is going to be a little bit more of like a a conversation between me and Eric as I try to uh, try try to work out exactly what I think about this about this topic because when it comes to um, parental rights, I feel like even the the term parental rights is kind of an oxymoron or um, it is at odds with with itself because for a parent to have rights that ultimately means that they have the right to disenfranchise their children. And then if you think that all human beings have rights, like inalienable rights, how can you think that one person, due to biological or genetic reasons, has the ability to determine or take away those rights from another individual? And that's always been troubling to me um and i feel like at least as i've gotten older and had a more abstract view of american culture and been able to step away from it and look at it from the outside we often have these platitudes to these ideas like oh it takes a village to raise a child and all these type of things um but i don't think anyone in america really believes that (laughs) I think every like the the predominant position, regardless of political party or whatever, is very much of like ownership. I had a child, and because they have not fully realized their ability to consent to things at the level of an adult, I actually own their decisions. I own them almost like property. Very, and this goes back to my high school education of. Aristotle and Nicomachean ethics, where in Nicomachean ethics, like Aristotle makes a pretty clear um statement of uh, comparing children to slaves. Like they are the property of their parents, like they have an ownership. One, but he's he argues it as a uh, as an honorable or just relationship, thus that if you hold ownership of something you have obligations to take care of that thing. Whereas if you didn't own it, you wouldn't feel obligated to take care of it type of thing. So his, in his mind or in his philosophy, the ownership implies that you would do the things that are in the best interest of the thing you own because you want the thing that you own to be good. And I feel like that leaves a whole lot of Room for a bunch of unintended consequences and negative outcomes if you just view it through a property lens, and I and I think in all of these discussions when people are throwing loosely around, but what about my parental rights in in the education of my child, and what about my parental rights in how my medicine is attributed to my child, and what about parental rights in how religion should be. Um, taught to my child and all of those things the underlying theme is that the belief of America is that children are property that they're not their own realized individual they do not have rights that is the concept of parental rights is the fact that my child doesn't have them and um, I, I don't know another way that anyone who argues for a parental right aspect um, can define it in any other way that their intrinsic, the intrinsic value of the child is as a property of their parent. And that's the big hang-up I have because I feel like if you argue for per- parental rights, rights mean that you have the freedom to decide for the child Regardless of the benefit of the child, you can withhold everything because you have the right to do it. You have the right to spoil them. You have the right to do all of those things because it is your right as their parent, as their biological creator. You have the right to make them have no rights. And so that's, I think, if you live in a society where you advocate for parental rights, you are also advocating for the Ill liberation of children. And I think that's a big problem. There's a big tension there. And I don't think anyone is really talking about that sort of philosophical, moral angle of it because everyone just defaults to being like, oh, yeah, it's my kid. So yeah, I have I, what I say goes.
0: Yeah, I think the, I mean, this is one thing that's on the right, especially they do tend to blame on more left-leaning thoughts considering like children and stuff saying like oh well they just want uh, anarchy for children but there's you know as we've spoken about in plenty of other things there's there is a gradient there is a difference between having um the more more freedom to make decisions or autonomy or whatever and like anarchy you know right right and i don't know i think what's complicated and one thing that um i think especially probably affects your view of it and causes you to have much stronger feelings is like texas is a very very heavy uh like parental rights kind of place right like if you don't want your kid um, in school, then you can do homeschooling, right? Yeah. Well, homeschooling in Texas I'm an example. has <laughs> has like no oversight. Pretty much,
1: we have to take like you can take like a test at the end of the year to approve your accreditation, so that you can say that oh yeah, I did all the stuff that every other fifth grader was supposed to do. But that's like the only thing, and really that only matters if like. At some point, you want to transfer out of homeschool back into the public school system because then they have to say, well, we have to sh- show me something that you actually competed, completed 4th through 6th grade before you get to go to junior high because otherwise we're going to have to make you retroactively go back and take all the placement exams that the state requires type of thing.
0: Yeah. And I mean, not that I've been personally involved in it uh, too much because it's it's too hairy of a situation but i have family members that have taken their kids out of school very early on uh because well held a child back in kindergarten uh for 2 years so moved school districts in order to do that because they didn't want their child to be the youngest one there which would mean the smallest one there uh in their head mm-hmm. and then they held them back and didn't teach them anything at school, just took them out and said, Nope, next year we'll enroll. Uh, didn't teach them anything at home, uh, sent them to school. Uh, the kid didn't really have an easy time because never learned how to read at home. Yeah. And now the kid is like, you know, a year older than all of the classmates, like one full year older and not able to read at the level that their brain is wanting to get to or learn things at the level that their brain is almost craving because your brain is trying to absorb information at that adolescent stage, um, that they then just removed the kid from school, said, fine, we'll do homeschooling and then never taught the kid to do anything. Yeah. Like barely knew how to read and write, uh, by the age of like 10, 11, and the only oversight they have is possibly this test. I don't even know uh, because I, again, haven't been uh, personally involved in it, but I can't imagine that they're doing anything other than hiring a tutor for two weeks before the test to cram for, right? you know, simple addition to pass like any rudimentary level education just so the parents don't get in trouble. Um, <clears throat> and the like the it because texas is so uh i don't know pining for like some sort of cowboy mentality <laughs> even though cowboys literally only existed for like nine months <laughs> like there was no driving cattle the time the cowboys began to exist where they would drive cattle up north to the time that barbed wire was invented preventing people from being able to drive cattle was in under a year yeah (laughs) so but they're they want to have this image so then they're able to say like well you can teach your kid these other life skills and that will suffice you know like you can teach them to raise cattle or whatever because we need farmers and blah 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 mm-hmm. uh which makes sense in theory but uh in practice you can have situations like the ones i'm talking about where there is no nothing being taught and yeah. so i think you know <clears throat> i was raised in a very uh, very bad household So I also have like very strong feelings personally on parenting, but being able to see like other places how parenting operates, it is a pretty universal thing that like parents have some level of ownership over their kids. And it's, it could be, and this goes into, you know, there's different types of parenting styles and all that kind of stuff. It could be, the parents have ownership over their child so much as their child is has free reign of anything, you know, like the kid in the slap.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the if if parental rights exist, then you have the right to let them be free range children as well. Not right, you don't right. just have to be the oppressor. You can also be the complete laissez faire parent.
0: So the I think like and correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're trying to uh, consider is more: what is the, like, what is the liberation of children, in a way that it's not letting them, you know, uh, eat Sour Patch Kids for breakfast every day. Right. They
1: don't. It's they don't necessarily become the arbiters of their own fate when they don't understand the consequences of their decisions, but yet they're still empowered. To be able to make those decisions. And they're not in any way um, hindered from any of the possibilities that they have from, like, their eventual future self. So, like, the extreme example, obviously, is, like, uh, Amish or Mennonites, you know. Like, obviously, they love their children. They they raise their children in a very family-centric, you know way. Um, But if you are raised and if you are born to Mennonite or Amish parents, you are going to be restricted access to a large part of the world. Like that is just the way that it is. Now you can counteract by saying, yeah, but they're still learning like the human values of like responsibility and justice and um, respect and all the things that we would say are like, Bedrock foundational things that you need to learn in order to be able to coexist with other humans um, but they're just doing it through like farming and building barns and agriculture and uh, being sustainable just to yourself off the land and nothing else and th- those types of older um, pre-technology type of values. but is it right for a parent to be able to restrict access to all of the possibilities in the world from a child just because of the culture or community that they grew up in. And I would say no, because and on, on its face, people probably will disagree with that saying like, Hey, my culture is very important where my people came from is very important. What my religious heritage is, is very important. And I want to raise my kid in that value system. I want them to be able to have an attachment to that culture where they came from. I want them to have an attachment to their elders and to their lineage and all of those types of things. Which I think on their face, people would say, oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. Your your child should have that type of awareness of their of their existence. But on the other hand, it's a great hypocrisy. <laughs> like if you want your child to grow up in the religious tradition, religious and cultural traditions that you had, you have to then also know that your ancestors before you at some point rejected the culture, traditions and religion that they grew up in to adopt the one that you currently now adopt. Like if you grow up in a Protestant household, even if it's like a heart, like a, like a hardcore religious Protestant household, uh, Episcopalian or something like that. Um, at some point before your grandparents, they were hardcore Roman Catholics. And at some point they had to, their children had to break from that tradition to start this other tradition. So to have this uh, thinking that it's an imperative that our children adopt the culture, traditions, and religious practices of, of their parents is paradoxical like you wouldn't have them unless someone broke from the tradition before and unless that ancestor broke from the previous tradition and unless because otherwise everyone would have the same fucking tradition so i i think if you if anyone just thinks about that from a philosophical and moral and logical standpoint for more than two minutes they realize that that is antithetical to to raising children as individuals like at some point at uh, in all times, someone is revolting from their tradition, culture, and religious experience. So to imply that that is supposed to be fostered in your children is is a big problem for me, just thinking it from a hypocrisy standpoint.
0: So then where does the line get drawn between awareness of some sort of culture and then Uh, almost practicing it like instilling it in your child because i think maybe that's a place that we could jump off of where's the difference between like parenting i don't know it's it's hard because the words have been uh when it comes to parenting it feels like a lot of the words have softened their meaning right the word like instilling values like that's a very forceful word mm-hmm. uh, but when it comes to parenting that is that is the common way that it's uh described, you know
1: exactly and that and the whole con- just the word rights if we talk about like the Bill of rights <laughs> like uh when we talk about it like that, when we talk about like our right to free speech or even the second amendment people's right to bear arms, all of those things, it's taken almost uh you know almost like a religiosity like uh it's it's this endowment but when parental right when you use the word rights with parental it seems like it's a bastardization of the term because then like I said at the beginning it implies that these people get to disenfranchise those Bill of Rights inalienable rights from their offspring
0: <laughs> yeah well guess guess what when it comes to rights, um you know you have the right to bear arms that does not mean that a cop isn't going to take it away from you and throw you in jail right uh for months or years and then you have to go through litigation to prove that you had the right and you still could lose it depending on the situation um so it is it is strange that the uh parental rights almost seems to be like they want to have a um what's the word like they want to have a proactive stance on things but that's not the way that rights work rights right. are um like a safety net <laughs> not not the you know uh, edge of the spear
1: or you know if it's thought of that you're born with these rights then how can you have an intermediary then be the adjudicator of which rights you get to have. I thought we were born with them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um I don't know it's it's pretty interesting. Um like Well, where okay, then where do you break down cuz maybe you've looked this up. Uh but there's I forgot the name of the philosopher but like in the 70s I think talking about the philosophy of parenting and the obligations of children to their parents because uh neither of us have kids mm-hmm. so um it is one to then you know maybe that's one reason that we can kind of look back at this like okay another tangent a strange thing uh that occurs like in mice and i looked up like quite a bit of biological parenting stuff is um like virgin mice have an extreme aversion to like infant mice pups and stuff mm-hmm. and they they will like attack them or avoid them run away from them um and uh, in in mice uh there's a lot of like uh cannibalism <laughs> so they would yeah. eat the pups and stuff it's very common um when it comes to virgin mice whenever that mouse has then uh, gotten pregnant and given birth to a litter themselves something switches in the brain and that like mother pup will then hit a uh hit a lever 100 times per hour in order to have a pup delivered to their nest box as long as like it stays under a certain threshold so it doesn't get too crowded there's something they're getting that endorphin hit or
1: dopamine or whatever that is now that flood is opened just from being just gestating once. Like now that right. and pathway it's, is open.
0: It's like a, it's, it's just a neurological pathway. Yeah. That opens up. Like I want to read this quick thing and then I'll go back to the philosophy of it. But, um, this is like describing all of the different chemical reactions that occur throughout the process. You have estrogen and progesterone preparing the uterus for embryo implantation and placental development. Prolactin stimulates milk production, so if we're talking about mammals, whereas oxytocin initiates labor and triggers milk ejection during nursing. These same molecules interact with dopamine, okay, also activate specific neural pathways to motivate parents to nurture, bond with, and protect their offspring. Parent uh, parenting in turn shapes the neural development of the infant social brain, and recent work suggests that many of these principles governing parental behavior and its effects on the infant development have been conserved from rodents to humans.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's so, there's a whole field of the philosophical aspect of this that focuses on that biological relationship, and some philosophers who posit that, oops, some philosophers that posit the idea that the biological imperative is what is required to actually have parenthood or to be a parent. or or And not only that, there's like the extensions of that, like actual gestation is the equivalent of parenthood. So there's some philosophers that say that would equate the biological nature of the replication of our genes gives both parents the rights over the offspring. So the father has a copy and the mother has a copy. And so they both have this feeling like you're describing in the, in, in the mice example. And that gives, that is what is intrinsic to parenthood. Um, others argue that, Fathers can't have this. This is only an experience that is between gestational mothers and their offspring. So the only true um, owner of a parental right type of um, existence would be the gestational mother of her actual offspring. And so then, of course, you have, like, the critics of these philosophical opinions being like, but what about uh, stepfathers? What about adoptive parents? What about foster parents? What about aunts and uncles who have to take care of the kids after the parents die? And uh, what about grandparents who raise the kids more than than mom and dad do? All all of those things. How do they have these types of connections? And um, so then that leads to, like, the philosophical reasoning of, Is the love of a child, and this goes back to Kant, is the love that you feel for a child an involuntary um, thing that is out of your control? Can you learn to love a child? Can you develop this skill and then love uh, some other child from some other part of the world the same way that you would love your own gestational child? Or is love this um, uncontrollable force of nature that we don't get to decide upon and it's more of an emotion that is foisted upon us by our chemical and predetermined other factors in our life and some some people have it with their kid and some people don't and you you don't get to decide whether or not you actually love your kid. And I think that, that's sort of an interesting question too, especially from the... From the human aspect, because while I think maybe in the direct nature biological representation, especially when it becomes um, between infants and mothers, we have a lot of evolutionary um, data to show that there are these types of connections. Like we talked about going all the way back in our brain episode and evolution episodes and stuff like that. But the the. 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 This, the concept of, or the dubious concept of unconditional love, and uh, the idea that you would be able to maintain this beyond the stage when they're a helpless infant and you have all of those nurturing feelings of, for that you must care for this helpless individual. Does that same thing carry over to when they're seven years old and they're throwing a fit on the soccer field? Like, how. Is that an acquired skill that you learn how to have that patience to deal with that seven-year-old child? Or is it still the uh, gooey love feelings that your brain was soaked in that you had when the kid was an infant? Where where does that line cross? And then how do you account for all the absolute love, affection, and compassion that teachers and... um Other people all around that are involved with raising children all have for multitudes of children that are not their own gestational children. So those are the other sort of questions. Like I think the biological imperative is important, but um, I don't think that is ultimately the moral or philosophical answer to this question that like these people get to have parental rights because of these DNA reasons type of thing
0: yeah i mean it's it's one thing like looking at the biological evolution of parenting uh that you know like so many other things when we start looking at how do humans relate to it is the the cognitive capacity of humans changes so much of the game Mm -hmm. like parenting in every other uh walk of uh, any type of life is solely based off of continuing the genetic line and parenting whether it's like a like an r selected strategy or a k selected strategy um when it comes to different types of animals where you're you know you're like a mouse where you have 20 pups in a litter because there is a high mortality rate uh so you spread out your care just to protect them enough mm. for the 21 days until they're able to, you know, uh, procreate themselves. Fin for
1: themselves, yeah.
0: And then you look at, you know, like a whale that is spending, you know, greater part of a year raising uh, its pup into a whale that can, like, even just get food for itself or elephants. or Or breathe or for itself.
1: Like the humpbacks, they got to, like, let the let their calves like almost rest on their back for like that first year and help push them up to the surface cuz they got to breathe a whole lot more often than mom does in order to take a breath and dive and stuff so the mom has to keep the keep the calf propped up there so it can keep breathing
0: yeah so it's it's one of those things where parenting from a biological standpoint comes down to what are the benefits for continuing the genetic uh traits and lines and all that kind of stuff to to uh any detriment that it would cause the parent to no longer be able to survive um you know like if you're caring for a calf and it's incredibly slow then you're going to be the last one in the group if you're being hunted by Mm -hmm. something so uh it's certainly a trade-off and when you get to humans um of course these things probably exist like in monkeys and stuff like that but when you get to humans there's so much more like mental capacity that comes into it and there's also the potential for mental illness to come into it or really just ideas that can shift the whole thing that the parent then no longer views it as a biological system which i don't think is the correct way to view it that it's only like well unless this benefits me it is not worth doing yeah um i don't necessarily think that that's like a good way to consider whether or not you should care for your child you uh, but you start to tie that in with all of the things that humans can think and act on and then tie it into like the philosophical aspect of like okay well i care for this thing um and i chose to have this thing in a lot of instances it's not always the case um so if you start to look at it from like a contract standpoint Mm -hmm. um then if the parent is the one that created a contract and said you are now going to come into existence then they almost feel like they do have some level of ownership right because it's they're the ones that chose to enter into the contract even though the child never chose to right um so it then becomes like a situation where the parents start amending the contract i guess (laughs) um and making sure that it benefits themselves without understanding the benefits for the child. They Whereas they get the I contract
1: think, and then they get ultimate veto power over any clause in the contract. You're yeah, right, exactly.
0: <laughs> so then I think possibly the best uh, liberation for children would be understanding that, no, there isn't a, like, this is not a one-party consent <laughs> contract, you know? Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, yeah, that's so that, like lends credence to the philosophical idea of constructionism where that you the argument would be the opposite of the biological um, that the relationship between parents and their children is not grounded in biology or the natural natural relationship between the parents and their offspring or gestational relationship it's more that The rights and obligations of parents are social constructs, which I guess that would lead to more of a human-centric view of this relationship rather than looking at a, a predominantly evolutionary view of this. Because beyond us, you know, being in tribes in Africa, we have established society, which has outpaced the biological evolution of our species. Um... And so now, I think it, it's probably more appropriate to look at these relationships in in a the same way we look at like uh, the contractual relationship of marriage, for example, um, being something that either party can be liberated from, but also being the fact that it is a contract. Both parties are empowered in that contract. Now the trouble you have is that an infant doesn't necessarily have the autonomy in order to consent to a contract. And so at any point in the contract, if you have one party that is not able to consent, you have to have some sort of regulation or oversight over that that is able to speak for that person that cannot consent. And it cannot be the person that they're in the contract with. (laughs) You can't have the person on the other side of the contract who's in agreement being like, and I'll uh, now also speak for the person that's signing the other side of this contract (laughs) like that. that, That's also in conflict with itself. Um, But then that that raises a lot of things that are scary to people Um, like. Does that mean that the state can come in and say that I'm an unfit parent and take my children away from me and then give them to other people that they say are fit parents? Does that mean that I have to pass some kind of like parenting quiz before I even get pregnant to be allowed to get pregnant? There's all these, um, you know, Orwellian type of fears that then creep in when you say, when you start to say that the relationship of parents and children is should not be viewed from a prioritization of biology. There, there, Then people get really scared. Um, and I think that goes back to the biological nature of having children that, oh my God, especially when it's an infant, everything in your brain and all the chemicals in your body are telling you that I must be only connected to this thing and protect it with every every last inch of my breath and my, and my body, and to have the option that there would be some sort of state regulation that could interfere with that connection is very dubious to a lot of people. And I understand that, because it's not the culture that we live in.
0: Well, I mean, there are fears from people, but there are also full-fledged theories that people have put forward, you know? Right. Like uh, Hugh Follette, the contemporary philosopher that thinks that parenting should be licensed and this is one of those things where it comes down to well are we talking about year zero or are we talking about from here to there Mm -hmm. because uh from year zero i would imagine yeah that's a that's a pretty good idea because when you think of anything that is licensed that means that there it takes like um competency to do it well, and it can cause significant harm if done poorly uh, but if you're trying to implement that now, especially in say a place like uh Texas, where there's uh or you know okay, Florida is where they're pretty much trying to license parenting uh, at this point, if you have the political uh system in place that does not align with supporting your family structure uh say allowing your child to express the gender that they care about then uh, not care about that they are Mm -hmm. um then okay the state gets to say nope you're unfit to be a parent right well that's not great um so how can you like combat those things and you almost have to just say you have to fall back on, well, the parent knows best about the situation, which I personally have a lot of qualms with because uh, my parents had no clue how to raise kids. Right. Um, So like they complained when I was a baby, um, when I was older, they would complain that like, yeah, you would just not stop crying when you were like a baby um, and an infant. Uh, Come to find out they were feeding me twice a day, like whenever they ate. Isn't that enough? (laughs) That's what we eat. Definitely not enough (laughs) to feed. Come on, baby. Eat the steak. (laughs) So there's, there is this. um, It almost comes down to like a dichotomy of, I don't know if dichotomy is the right word. It comes down to uh, these two different situations where you have one being, fully uh, bureaucratic state sanctioned or some sort of oversight sanctioned versus um, totally hands-off from a governmental standpoint because the parents can do as they wish mm-hmm. and our current system falls definitely in between those two things you have child services but because the u.s is such a jacked up system of authority you can have, you know, places where the child protective services are never going to do anything. And even if they did go to visit, they're going to benefit the parent's side, which may not necessarily be a bad thing in all circumstances, but they're going to take the the parent's word for it. And if that parent happens to be a very good liar and able to hide their abuse, then you know, oh yeah, those people aren't always trained for that. You have no money to be trained for. That's in the big place deal, like like, Texas.
1: Here, yeah, here the child advocacy center, like it's a great center, and you know they're the people that, uh, like, if there's a child abuse case and it's going to court, like the children go to the child advocacy center. And then, if those kids have to testify in court, like it's the child advocacy center that helps those kids like get ready for the big day where they might actually have to sit in a courtroom and face their abuser and all that type of stuff. But the big deal is like the child advocacy center wants to hire people that are full fledged, you know, child psychologists, child therapists, um, sociologists, like well trained individuals. But they don't have the funding to hire people that are at that level unless it's like those people are like just willing to do it out of the goodness of their heart and maybe have some financial backing from some other place because the salary they're going to make from the Child Advocacy Center is not going to be like even, you know, a livable wage compared to like working at fast food or something. So um, they're, they're like if you want the good people, the, the best, well-trained people, the most knowledgeable people to be – Advocates for children. There also has to be a large amount of funding that pays for those people that have that level of expertise to interact with those children. Because if you're just going to pay them like thirty k, it's not going to be enough to get that level of person.
0: Right. Uh, but then you can also totally see um, with the trajectory of certain politicians. Uh, I would say that can go very far south when you start to have the the government oversight committee have um, unlimited funding to hire the people that they want mm-hmm. and to go in and determine that a family situation is not proper one that might include um, justifications such as well these are two different races of people right, raising right. kids so it is it's not a, it's a muslim is, household got to get them out of that I mean, yeah, like how, how would you consider, um, what would you consider it an effective system being and one where the state had that much more, uh, control over things after nine eleven? Well, you know, this is, this is a two-year-old. We don't want them raised in a household that is going to celebrate the, you know, uh, destruction of two buildings and then, uh, the Pentagon that, um maybe some people thought had it coming and then a, a third building in new york that somehow fell but you know that's <laughs> office fires so we don't need to get into that
1: controlled demolition
0: <laughs> <clears throat> they, they said pull it you know i yeah, <laughs> i heard yeah, the yeah. tapes <laughs> uh so it the philosophy of it is very interesting to get into but the psychology of like parents is one that's has been you know well studied, I would say. Um, uh, but it it starts to get very confusing when it comes to like parental rights. So mm-hmm. uh because you have you know the spectrums of responsiveness to the children versus demandingness and the best sort of parenting style is just kind of a mix and one that's flexible of these different things you know you need like an authoritarian whenever the kid is going to run into the street and the parent refuses to allow them to do that because that's a rule they set Um, but you don't need an authoritarian when uh, say somebody uh, like the dad has a new girlfriend over to the house and the child asks, um, can I just spend some time alone with you, dad, because I haven't seen you. And the dad turns around and says, uh, if you ever disrespect my girlfriend again, I'm yeah. going to break your legs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is something I personally have experience <laughs> with. Uh, so it's you You start to find these different ways that parents actually operate and they're kind of segmented out. But again, when you add in the ability of people to take ideas um, and, say, listen to certain media and conflate those concepts, it starts to get really out of whack. And I I mean, especially living where we do, I'm sure that there's people that are up in arms over CRT, but California, for the most part, uh, along the coast, is not falling into like the the spirals that it seems like they're more concerned about
1: accidentally sending their kids to a school that is run by scientology and they didn't know it
0: (laughs) yeah um which is funny i i went with my in-laws to my mother-in-law's um what was it physical therapy for her shoulder Mm -hmm. and i was there because miho couldn't go so i'm like now the kind of You're the helpful translator. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, so, you know, just in case they need to explain something, I know how to say a little bit and I know how to communicate with her when the physical therapist may not understand mm-hmm. how can I show her this thing. But anyways, we were leaving the, like, physical therapy center and it's it's a big, like, hospital system here uh, called Hogue that, like, is one of the ones that we can go to. And just with the name Hogue, I had, I was like, okay, this is named after somebody. And then we exit the place and we see, look at the window and there's like a cross and then like a, a Proverbs like verse or whatever. Nice. And, um, I was just like, I had no idea this place was Christian, <laughs> but my mother-in-law just goes like my father-in-law points at it. <laughs> my mother-in-law goes, Oh, Eric hates that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst (laughs) um and you know again she's catholic so she's um that's that's one of the situations where like i explain the parenting system i was raised in and i thought that that's how all parents were that it was just a system that yeah this is the best the parents can do and they're all abusive right right uh no then i go and uh meet you know Mijo's miho's parents and i'm like oh they're actually, very nice um, yeah, and i th- I think the in
1: in general i I don't want to you know be here to just vilify the general concept of parents um but i th- the what i I guess where I'm landing is more that being a parent, if anything, should be considered a neutral state, not an uh, intrinsic good. Or an intrinsic evil. Like uh, being raised by your parents has the exact same potential for doing incredible amounts of harm as it does to being doing incredible amounts of good in your life. Um, And I think of for, for most individuals, the people that are most likely to harm them the most are their biological parents. Because they're the people that you spend the most time with. They're the people that you have this biological relationship with that you know nothing else from the moment that you exit the womb other than this relationship with these individuals. And how? And so everything that you learn um, from the time of your infancy, just all those cues that you pick up on. Um, that are completely subconscious to you and then you have to work out in therapy years later, like that all gets embedded in you. And even a lot of it is strictly just from your genes. It's not necessarily like nurture type of behavior. A lot of it is straight from uh, just the genetic makeup that you are a copy of these people that have these dysfunctional characteristics. And so you're probably going to inherit some of them. Um, And so it's going to be up to you to be really proactive about figuring out ways to combat those types of things so that you don't end up the same way they did. Um, But I I think the having the default setting in our culture being that parent equals good is part of the issue here, because even when we were talking about just previously, when we were talking about the concepts of licensing or regulation when it came to parenting, the examples that we came up with for why it would be bad were in large part boogeyman type of anecdotal examples. Um, and we, we do live in America. We do have a history of state violence and, um, underpinnings of racism in all of our systems and the way that all of that works. And we've talked frequently about how that whole system needs to be uprooted and changed. Um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed was a very big um, book that we covered here in regards to that. And one of the things that Paulo Freire was talking about when he talked about with um, parents in general and the parent relationship with their children is that you have to understand parenting from the social construct of the environment in which the parents are living in. So if you are growing up in a... Uh, Government state run structure that is authoritarian and has oppressive tendencies and responds to problems with violence, then that is going to trickle down to the way that parents treat their children. You will have more authoritarian structures in the majority of the households in that society the parents will treat the children the way that the state treats the poorest people in that society because all of that becomes the way we do things. Um, So the idea that parents somehow exist outside of the culture or the state or the society and they are like this separate entity that gets to work in a vacuum on raising these kids in a bubble away from all of that noise is just a myth like the the parents are the vectors of the noise to the children they are the ones that embed all of those cultural mores and the impetus of the society and authoritarian regimes into the children and they so the way that the parents parrot what the authority figures in their life do to them, whether it's their asshole boss or their asshole president or their asshole senator or whatever it is, the cop that they interact with, that is the way that the children are also going to reciprocate that relationship. So the structure and the systems of the state are very important, just like we talked about, and how how you uproot that is through the education of children so that they can have a different experience than their predecessors um and they have to be taught that they are like part of history not an abstract observer of history and all of that type of thing that we talked about before with pedagogy of the oppressed so understanding that i think that just take a step back and to say that parenting in the abstract can only be considered a neutral and we have to understand that it is just a, a facilitating factor that passes down whatever dysfunctional system that we all coexist in. It's just a way of passing that down to the next generation. Then I think it makes a whole lot more sense to have a regulatory type of feature that is an oversight, even upon the government structure that you have as a check to whatever authoritarian regime and thing that you have. So if you start to believe that we need these regulations to keep us, you know, on the road so we don't, you know, peel out into one level of extremism or the other, then you, if you think that you need that for all of your government agencies, then I don't see how it would be necessarily a toxic thing to say that you should have that for per- parenting as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean again it just goes back to parenting can do like so much harm, bad parenting can. Right. Um like
1: the mo- the, the the most likely sexual abusers of children are fathers.
0: And the just considering like uh even one that is pretty well sanctioned by the state and i say well sanctioned i mean has a lot more oversight like the adoption system um just ha- being adopted can can screw somebody up so they're like it it doesn't you can go into a fairly good household and that person can have a lot of mental damage that they don't recognize they should work through um in order to be a good person. And I think that's where a lot of it kind of comes down to is there's, there isn't a good person, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, there's no Ubermensch in a lot of societies because it would require people to have, uh, similar ideas. And once you all have the same sort of ideas, um, about what the right person is, then you can start to spiral into, uh, some other, aspects of it of course i don't like you know um falling back on well it's a slippery slope because slippery slope is a a logical fallacy Mm -hmm. Um, but considering there are uh, real world examples currently going on in this country of very strong oversight to what parents can and can't do um, in the way that i think is bad Mm -hmm. then it 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 does go back and forth, you know. But then I think
1: Um, think the restrictions on what parents can and can't do from a government aspect right now, like in Texas, where you're trying to deny people gender affirming care and those types of things, those are a reflection of the seeming losing the grip on what we thought the traditional values of our society were. We are experiencing the change in our in our culture, we are experiencing the change in our society and we don't like that. So we're going to double down and go crazy hard against it, making incredibly repressive um, laws and ordinances to try to withstand that potential change. But there, it, by doing it, you're doing it by disguising it as we are liberating parents, we are giving them the authority to make these decisions for their children. Cause right now all the children are just like talking to their, talking to their sneaky groomer teachers. And the teachers are all telling them to get gender, gender assignment surgery behind their parents' backs. And the parents don't even know what's going on. Like that is the, the boogeyman that is, that is being fought against rather than like the real situation on that is happening on the ground. Um, so I would say that the fight similarly, like we talked about with, uh, with policing, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not maybe, uh, let's just have some more moderate policing. (laughs) Maybe maybe if we ban chokeholds, it'll all, it'll all even out and everyone will be cool again. We'll just, everyone can everyone be cool. um, like I think it's almost uh, at a stage where you ha- we have to start to evaluate this the way that we evaluate lots of other situations. And why-, why I think the licensing example is kind of maybe the way to try to trend towards even if you don't have to actually obtain a license. Maybe that's just general oversight by some regulating body that makes sure that you're not like a terrible person to raise children. Um, cause we, these, these cases are obvious when we talk about medical interventions, right? So like if a kid has like cancer and the parents for whatever religious reason don't want to get the medical care for that child, the doctors can petition the state to, take over the care of that child for that child's well-being, even if the parents have a religious reason not to get the medical intervention. And we would, I think the vast majority of people would agree that if a kid has some kind of malady that can be cured by medicine, and if for whatever reason the parents are risk averse to that medicine, we should act in the best interest of the child in that case, not defer to the parents' judgment. Um, I think that's similar in in all cases, just because I, I think parenting is right now one of the few things in our society that requires no knowledge base, no expertise, no um, licensing, no level of uh, commitment to further education no nothing you're not required to do anything to be a parent and be able to be in charge of the life of another human being you you have zero requirement you can it doesn't matter and to the point that you can pretty much do whatever you want to that human being unless it gets really egregious and someone notices it and even then it's hard for the state to intervene so i right now i would say if the fear is slippery slope and boogeyman for the other side of state intervention, I would say the current state is way more to the other side of the pendulum swing right now. And we need something to at least swing it back closer to the middle, to the middle ground. Cause right now there's way too much possibility for outcomes that are detrimental to children with little to no intervention in those child's lives. And then once something happens in the early stages of their life, a lot of the times, that's like permanent damage. That's stuff that you can't then later correct for. So if you want a society that is a healthier society, you want to try to eliminate these sort of cyclical patterns of shitty parent does shitty stuff to a kid, that kid becomes a parent does shitty stuff to their kid, Does and then you, you keep this bad cycle going of people doing bad things to all of their offspring down the line. Um... I don't know. I I would, I just think if you got to have like, if you got to be able to pass a simple test to get a driver's license, if you got like, there's just some things that I think, man, you, this should be something that is required. And I get that the, the immediate knee jerk reaction is like, oh my God, well now you're going to basically say you're going to, the next step is to just have everyone on mandatory birth control and then the people that don't pass the test, we permanently sterilize to make sure they never become parents and all that type of stuff. And I, right now, I don't think that that type of reaction is the thing that would happen in the pendulum swing back to the other way. Because right now we're so far into the wild west of parents get to do whatever the fuck they want that... Any kind of swing a little bit back to resistance on that would be beneficial to the greater outcome.
0: I mean, this really, like the argument for it, I feel, comes down to, um, and one that I think could help swing the pendulum back the other way and hopefully correct a lot of the uh, neglect and abuses that go on. It's one that I come down to on, you know, a large reason for pretty much everything that's going poorly is there's just a lack of social services exactly if you had the ability to have support um where you know like so there's there's this uh trend going on in the world where children are like people are having fewer and fewer children right and uh, I was reading a book that was um made written over twenty two years ago is called um what was it called? It was something about six billion, talking about six billion people. So it was before mm-hmm. we had seven billion and we almost have eight billion <laughs> now. So uh just you know and, and this was this assault. was not
1: the prequel to one billion Americans by Maddie Watt.
0: No. <laughs> no. no, this was a this was a well-researched book. Mm. Um but in traditional societies and this is a quote straight from the thing uh, children represent a substantial economic asset they're useful as a source of child labor and later on as insurance for old age and ill health at the same time they're inexpensive to rear eventually households demand for large numbers of children's it, households demand for large numbers of children is driven down by the modernization of economies and improving improvements in living standards uh, the advent of mass school raises the cost of child rearing and removes children from productive activity so you can no longer use them on your farm yeah you're not you they're not free lates
1: free slave labor anymore
0: <laughs> yeah and parents uh can and have to invest in their offspring in order to build a quality of life for their children and then if you're still of the mindset that my kids need to take care of me when i'm older of course you want them to be better off because then that means that you're not going to have a hard time when you're older now the shift like in this trend then you can start to see well then there's so much competition built into raising a child and if there's competition then you have to uh, there's the assumption that I have to out compete and have a child that out competes. Mm-hmm. So that means, you know, um, screaming at them until they learn how to chip onto the green yeah, or yeah. whatever. Um, and then you can imply too that that means, well, if there's so much competition in raising children, that means that there's nothing that. I can fall back on or the child can fall back on. So it really comes down to if you have a lack of any way to save people, (laughs) then you're going to have a uh, society built around the concept of, I know what's best because I'm trying to out-compete all of the other parents. Good old Um, capitalism. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So... It comes down to that need of competition uh, in our current society. And that's one that is, um, you know, I personally hate, but it's one that doesn't really let us think about any other benefits because then we can only come down to these two ways of doing things without addressing what is quite possibly the most um most egregious offender when it comes to the outcome of how parents are fighting for their own rights or whatever. And that's the capitalist mindset that competition is good, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we say competition, I'm not talking about, you know, on the flag football field. We're talking about people living and dying. Yeah, yeah. So Ma- maintaining
1: more resources for me so that I can survive better in means that I'm depriving someone else of resources,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, what like like i we rent, of course, but one of the things that drives me nuts is like home values, and it's it's literally like in order to have a a stable amount of money that you're paying to live somewhere, you gotta get a home, otherwise rent prices keep going up, right, and the house prices keep going up, so you gotta buy a house, okay, well, what does that mean? People buy houses as investments because they know eventually um barring any catastrophe that happens on the rare occasion every ten years or so um, housing prices aren't going to drop so significantly that you can then turn a profit and buy a better place right right you well, go into
1: you go into two hundred thousand of dollars of debt so that in seven years you can cash out of that and then go into $400,000 of debt. But in the between transaction, you probably pocket like 50 grand. So you're, you're actually increasing your, your wealth profile by just being able to like continually take out more money because you took out, you finally got on the buying house train. And every time you upgrade the house, you're able to pocket a little bit of that proceeds in your pocket. And, but you have to take out a bigger loan the next time.
0: Yeah. So it's, but the the whole thing is like just driven by the concept of competing against other people mm-hmm. like you don't need to be in order to like live happily <laughs> and that this is one thing that like chrisman always says is like there's an alternate reality where we're extremely happy people living in pods eating bugs mm-hmm. because like happiness there are people in other countries where they don't have the housing market that exists in the U S that are completely content. Like, I remember I was like, um, some friends were like coming back to the house once. And, uh, I had put on a documentary that I was watching. It was talking about like North Korea and, um, I just decided to mess with them. And I was like, pointing out i'm like how can you tell me those people aren't happy look at them smiling they're at a festival like when was the last festival you went to and obviously the political system in north korea is not one that i would think is ideal um but there are people you are able to find happiness in situations but when you bring in the concept of competition and capitalism that really makes it where people have to fight each other Mm -hmm. and that means using your children to your advantage (laughs) and so that means well if i'm going to have an advantage by having children then that means i have to have a say in what the children do or learn or are free to understand you know
1: yeah and i think that's the ultimate goal the the ultimate 3d chess goal of the crt battles and the uh gender uh, affirming culture war and all that is specifically about this competition principle and it's not that parents know the best way to make their kids compete better against other kids it the concept is right now the the liberal concept of a uh of a public education system is seen as this kind of uh, thing that shouldn't be evening the playing field for all people. Like, if we gave everyone the same level of education, the whole idea is that regardless of your economic background, if we can get everyone in the same educational system, then we don't have these disenfranchised people who are ignorant to the way that the world works. Everyone's getting this same base level education. We get, have more people that have more equal opportunities, maybe not totally equal, but it helps us get better, even playing field. Um, and that I think is offensive to a lot of folks to have, to create, even create, uh, an illusion of an equal opportunity is offensive to a lot of folks, partly because like we talked about in the free, in the free area example, like, Parents are a vector for the authoritarian governmental society that they live in. And if you want your kid to actually have an edge up, then the ultimate thing would be to degrade and, and destroy the public education system and make it as non-functioning as possible. So that then from a state and government level, you actually have representatives, of representatives who say, oh, public education doesn't work anymore. It's a tax boondoggle. Um, the way better idea would be to take the money that we tax people for and instead of giving it to public education, we give it to private school vouchers. And then all the kids can choose to go to whatever Christian private school that they want. And I think that is the ultimate goal you destroy the public education system, and then you open up more avenues for people to get into the private school field, which disenfranchises a lot of people, but you're not worried about disenfranchising them because that makes it easier for your kid to have a competitive advantage over those kids and have a better chance at success, which is just the, even if they even if they don't, Um, agree with it, or even if they don't actually want to speak it into existence, I think those parents who most of like are conservative leaning, um, don't want to admit that that is the ultimate goal of, of this whole thing. Because if they admit that, then they also are admitting that we're at this point of late stage capitalism where we have to really, really do a lot of choosing of who are the have-nots and who are the haves in order for just a few of us to maintain status quo. Because the future is dwindling for every new offspring. Like every new kid born is probably going to have a worse off financial horizon than their parents did. So the only way to correct that so that Maybe our chosen few kids can still live in uh, live in the suburbs and have this sort of 1980s, 1990s uh, capitalism dream is if we disenfranchise as many of the other people as possible. And the way to do that is to completely destroy the public education system. And I think that's the ultimate goal.
0: Yeah, uh, but I don't necessarily think that it's thought out in that way. It's it's. Again, Oh, no, I uh, don't think any of
1: those people that are showing up to any of the school board meetings
0: have that have
1: that long view in mind. But I bet you that the uh, the guy, the people in the think tanks that came up with, okay, how are we going to push these culture war issues that are going to get us closer to whatever end goal that is on the extreme side of opposing what we see as a big um, liberal socialist agenda? I think that is that was definitely in their notes in the meetings when they were coming up with what we're going to push the culture war issues for like this is they do have that as an end goal. It's not like an unrealized thing,
0: yeah, I mean it's but I think the their end goal is one where they totally believe in uh capitalism, so then they believe in we can make the most money, and that is the how we determined value so you can um you can paint all of these opposing ideas as socialist because they understand any trend towards socialism means they no longer have as much money right because it's the people who need money who have money but i honestly think their thinking of it is more just well we can make money for us and the people around us not so much we can entrench uh control over these things it's just well if you know i think public education is bad i'm just going to highlight how bad it is and come up with as many culture war uh, points of battle i can imagine until enough people are swayed to think that they should go to a private institution And I happen to know a lot of people who own private institutions, so um, I understand how good they are at. Because we
1: can pray, we can pray in these schools,
0: (laughs) (laughs) right? But it's—I don't think it's an explicit. I want to degrade public education. It is an. I want to show other people how bad public education is. Yeah, you know. And um, and scare
1: enough superintendents into quitting because they will get personal lawsuits against them and scare enough teachers into quitting because they'll get l- parents who sue them over having rainbows in their classroom. And, you know, eventually the, the entire public school system becomes untenable because you don't have enough teachers. You don't have anyone who wants to be a superintendent. You don't have anyone who wants to be an administrator. <laughs> like,
0: right, who do you yeah. get? So... It it definitely comes down to, I think, having a good framework of how to view these things, you know?
1: Well, and that's the thing like, is like when it comes to those people that are being run out of their positions with teachers, administrators, and superintendents, especially in Texas, like superintendents are resigning, you know, by the dozens from school districts here. And the the problem is, is that you're pitting completely unqualified, ignorant parents against people who have gone to school, done the alternative certifications, done the extensive exhaustive, continuing education every year, come you know, modified how their training regimens and modified their understanding of childhood psychology was as they moved forward in their careers because it was required by law for them to continue to update themselves on what's going on. And you're we're allowed to then say, "Oh, because these people have a created a biological copy of themselves, they get a higher say over these people who are actually experts and did the did the studies and did the work and know the probably the better way to interact with your children than you do um and I think that that's just sort of the thing the the biggest hang up for me is it's obvious when it's a medicine example, but I just don't feel like people treat it as the same when it comes to education. And I think it should be treated the same because the people who are educators go through a whole lot to learn about how to interact with children of all different types of backgrounds, of all different types of learning disabilities, of all different types of attention levels. And for you to think as a parent that just because this is a genetic copy of me i know better than this other person is a complete false premise is is just where i'd kind of land on it
0: yeah
2: you so, should
1: uh, this if anything as a parent if you're listening the this should be a relief to you you should be totally happy to relinquish those types of things to the teachers and counselors and mentors in your child's life who have done the done the work that maybe you haven't had time to do because you live in this post capitalist this late stage capitalist society. So you're having to work one or two jobs and just to feed them and do all those things. This should the thing that should be you should be hearing from this is that You aren't an island to yourself. You have a lot of help. You have experts all around you that are trying to do the best thing for your children because they have studied and have lots of experience on what to do in the best interest of your children. And I get that there is a natural evolutionary trait especially from biological parents, to be incredibly risk averse with their children. Like even if you don't have like a religious exemption to medical care, I can get how you would be skeptical of putting your kid into some surgery that a doctor says they need just because you're like, well, it's my kid. Now I'm thinking that half a percent risk of death in this surgery in my mind is the only thing I'm thinking of. But if it was anyone else's kid, I'd be saying, it's a 99.5% chance of success. Put him in there. But once it becomes my kid, all I can see is the risk side. So I understand that dynamic. What I would just say is be aware of it and how that is a huge bias and blind spot in being a parent.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's... um it's a blind spot, but I think it's also one that, like, you need to also understand. And it it's difficult when it comes to applying like evolutionary biology to your own life. Um, but the biology of rats and rat parents to their rat pups, um, rats don't go to school. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's there's this whole other aspect of being a human that um yeah you you should try and find some solace in understanding that okay there is this other thing that is like separate from myself that is trying to uh better this child and um I'm sure that's one that's like kind of difficult for a lot of people but uh you know I may know I may never know um but it is one thing that can affect everybody else (laughs) significantly
1: exactly well um as i'm sure a lot of people have turned it off because they don't want to hear two non-childless people talk about parenting but i i tried to make sure that we weren't talking about like uh the me the the methods of parenting and like you know you you shouldn't uh you shouldn't use corporal punishment against a two-year-old, but maybe against a six-year-old, it's fine. And you know, I like that's not the discussion that I wanted to have. I wanted to have the much more overarching uh, moral discussion of uh, where 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 these uh, roles and rights and who endows people with these rights and what does that imply if you really buy into the parental rights? Because I mean, we didn't even get into the idea of like the parental rights origins are very like you know uh biblical and even predate you know the old testament but the the entire idea of parental rights is not is the essence that you because you are the progeny of this offspring you have the right to make sure it exists and survives but you also have the right to kill it whenever you want that is what the ultimate um, implication of parental rights over an offspring um, has like you can take it out of the world and i'm sure lots of moms told their kids i brought you into this world i could take you out of it and i'm telling you that is the literal meaning of parental rights <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah it's um then not the founder of uh anarchist capitalism he was he was a libertarian so hard that he was like yeah you can sell your kids into slavery they're totally your property right um so i think it is important to reflect on the people that um your own thinking might also align with uh so it's it's important to recognize um where your thinking can be adapted or manipulated by other people um
1: because it sounds like a cool it sounds like a cool idea on its face like yeah i'm a parent i should have some rights over like i don't want some some you know stranger just being able to come in and molest my kid and i can't say anything about it right but that's not what parental rights means and i think that's what a lot of people just default to the thought of when they hear the term
0: yeah i mean my my um my dad was a divorce attorney, uh, for the time that I knew him. So, uh, father's rights and those sorts of things were, were a big, big part. Um, but you know, you can always, uh, instead of paying child support, you can just declare bankruptcy because you don't want to. Uh, that's one thing you can do that I'm super glad that I have the exact same name as him because it has caused no issues. <laughs> Well, I'm
1: sure the, the debt collectors are all chill about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, but you know, I don't know the, I don't know what other aspect to talk about it just cause I, I, I honestly think people who have kids are fine listening to people who don't have kids. Um, Because I am fine listening to people who do have kids, like, talk about different things and how their thought process has changed on certain stuff. But uh, I would hope that it's one that's—I would hope we're almost preaching to the choir, (laughs) you know. um, I can't imagine too many people who listen to this that would uh, consider, you know— taking their kid out of school because they're saying you should be nice to other races of people. Um, if you are somebody who is against that, then you can stop listening. Yeah, any point. I hope, I hope my parents aren't listening then. <laughs> I know mine are because I
1: have, there's some very specific reasons why I was taken out of public school, Eric. <laughs> and I, and, oh, and I At the end of second grade when, you know, I knew that after that year I was going to go into homeschool, you know, I went around telling all my friends, man, it's going to suck for you guys having to be stuck here in public school. I'm going to homeschool, you go, because it's way better. Like, I'm going to learn so much more than you guys and I won't be, like, subjected to all the stuff because, of course, I was just parroting everything that my parents told me about how terrible— public school was, even though I was the one who was going every day, like they weren't there. Uh, Yeah. And then when we went, when we went back to public school, I was telling TC the story at the river the other day, when we went back to public school, like, um, my sister and brother had never been to public school. It was just been me. And, um, when we went back, I was going back from private school into, uh, high school as a junior. And my sister was going from seventh grade and she was going to enter into public high school as a freshman. So she was skipping eighth grade to enter in as a freshman. And um, like my neighbor, who's my best friend, best, best man at my wedding. He is a public school kid the whole time. And I had, you know, he had lived next door to us since I was seven years old. So my parents invited him over and he was over at our house like every day. But this was like a formal invitation to come over to our house to have a discussion And it was to because they wanted to ask him about the dangers in the public high school, um, mostly because, you know, like, the things that they had told my sister about her, like, getting sexually assaulted in the hallways was probably going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. Jeez. And he, he was like... He was very patient. He was like, yeah, no, never had any problems like that. <laughs> <laughs> but like my, that's how scared my parents were the day before we were entering into public high school. Like we had to have uh, a secular kid come over and talk them down about all the rampant drug use and sexual assaults that were happening in the hallways.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we definitely had like drug use in my high school, but um, it was not a problem that you couldn't avoid.
1: Yeah, I never had any kids come up to me and be like, you got to try, it. you got to do this right now and I'm I'm going to beat the shit out of you if you don't do these drugs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I did get offered opiates at my uh movie theater job, but that was um he was pretty chill about it because he was on opiates. <laughs> right,
1: right, exactly. I never had like the weed pusher guy come up to me and shove me up against the locker. <laughs> and say smoke this joint motherfucker (laughs) (laughs) never
0: happened it turned out to be the teacher yeah Uh, no i definitely had i think in fourth grade uh my teacher we went to go do the you know meet the teacher thing uh and she was black and uh my parents definitely freaked out and tried to see if they could take Mm -hmm. me out of the the class and um But all the other classes were full. Thankfully, Uh, she was a good teacher. And then I think she like um, she either was pregnant like early on or became pregnant at some point in the year, and then needed to you know miss some school because she was having a baby. And um, the only thought process from my parents is just like, how irresponsible! (laughs) (laughs) You,
1: we're trying, we're trying not to have have these these types of people procreate
0: anymore <laughs> yeah you have a job you should have timed it to have your baby during the three months i'm sorry two months uh, that you're off
1: oh god yeah so so i'll yeah also remember remember that eric and i had had great parenting experiences so our, our perspective on this might 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 come from a certain angle
0: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i i definitely i've mentioned it quite a few times on here but um like over the years i've uh felt like i've been able to advance enough to where i can think about the things and not you know get i don't have like that pit in my stomach that comes up anymore whenever Mm -hmm. i think about like or remember something from childhood um so i can reflect upon it and often I think most people had like pretty bad parents. Like I don't, I know very few people uh, that, that had parents. And so it blows my mind. Um, Listen, I have conflicting uh, thoughts about these things because obviously I think you shouldn't um, totally disregard people that you disagree with politically because I think they're being lied to about a lot of things. Uh, and so you not saying you have a responsibility, but it would be nice if more people were trying to open up those people to, um, different perspectives on how, you know, they're doing poorly in life. It's not people pouring over the border. Uh, it is, it is the, the, um, you know, trickle-down responsibility, as I was talking about. It's your responsibility to make sure you have enough food on the table. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I think that you should try and keep um maybe not lines of communication open with those people, but at least understand where they're coming from. But when it comes to my own parents, there's, there's no longer room for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've tried talking to them and it didn't go anywhere, and I've had multiple situations occur to me over the years that it was enough for me to not talk to those people. So it's, um, you know, I'm not going to say that all four of them are Nazis. I know one of them definitely is. <laughs> um, but it's almost where you can, I, I put it into that category of like, okay, people who have differing political opinions all consider, you know, speaking with them or whatever um but when it comes to somebody who's bought into a Nazi ideology that's too far gone and there so there's
1: just that state of willful ignorance like if people are right they they don't have the curiosity to validate their own understanding of something like so you have an understanding of a of a topic because you heard someone talk about it and you're like oh wow yeah that makes a lot of sense but if you don't have the curiosity to take the next step to validate that thought process by seeking out other sources or trying to understand the where that ideology came from to see if like you agree with it all the way down you know the rabbit hole type of thing um and you're willing to just like accept that at face value and let that be your new existence then i then i think that is a level of we cannot have the hegelian marxian paulo Freirean dialogue there is no opportunity for dialectic if someone is willfully ignorant and is not willing to do the work to support their understanding like that is the bare the bare minimum requirement to have the dialectic is that both people are willing to take to take their understanding of a topic do the do the extra work to support their understanding but not only that do the extra work to figure out what supports the other person's understanding and if none of those efforts are being made by by one of the parties, then dialogue cannot happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just going to say that it, it amazes me that so many people uh, still have relationships with their parents. And so I just, uh, I don't know. I'm always astonished when when people can describe like, you know, like, I don't know how people and i'm saying i i personally don't have a capacity to to personally do it myself i certainly understand why people have relationships with their parents but um i don't get it when somebody says like yeah my parents are just a uh, racist and so it's you know can't spend too much time around yeah. them because it they, just gets tough around thanksgiving slurs. but
1: all the other weekends are fine
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so i um you you are allowed to <laughs> call your parents out and you are allowed to uh, not ever talk to them again. And uh, sometimes it works out for uh, so much better in your uh, personal health and well-being.
1: And I think that's um, that's a part of what the whole thing we're talking about is that parents who have no requirement to understand even just a little bit of childhood psychology and a little bit of the dynamic between a authoritarian figure and a completely... Uh, submissive, uh, individual who has no, no ability to consent or actually autonomy to make decisions for itself. Like understanding that psychological dynamic is important, but when parents don't have an understanding of that, there leaves a lot of room to create a, a incredible amount of emotional and psychological manipulation, either through passive aggressive behaviors Or codependent behaviors that even if the parent and the child end up at complete odds with each other on almost every sort of ideological issue, the grip of that codependency and the grip of the guilt and the grip of those other things that have been instilled in the relationship through a very dysfunctional dynamic exist for the lifetime of that relationship. And Mm -hmm. so it's easy for your mom to guilt trip you into things that no one else in the world could do. Even if you have a huge ideological disagreement with your mother on every issue, you can still feel shame and guilt for not um, adhering to her wishes like that, because that happened when you were an infant, like that was developed way back there. And I think that is, that's like a big, uh scary part of not having like uh just a little bit of an understanding of what it takes to be a parent and that you don't have to have that understanding in order to be afforded these incredible powers of authority over a human being.
0: Yeah. I mean I, my own mom uh would tell us time and time again that whenever she was little, like the only thing she wanted out of life was to become a mom which is very weird for me to think that there are people like that. Um, But then, you know, fast forward to uh, her starting to, you know, and I'm not saying this in a way to like make fun of her, but uh, it is a fact and she's totally unwilling to get any help for it or uh, see somebody about it. But she started uh, believing God was talking to her through clocks. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that sounds like schizophrenia to me, but I'm not a psychologist. And she reached a point with that, that then, you know, the only thing she cared about was being a mother. uh, But she was not a good one. Um, And she didn't do the best she could have done. A lot of people say, like, they all try as hard as they right or can. They, they, they,
1: they could have only done it the way that they did it and they couldn't have done it any other way
0: <laughs> yeah there there were certainly instances where she was totally fine giving support to other people and neither of us um but there reached a point where she was we were talking and i was bringing up the you know abraham story of well if god told you to kill me would you do it and she's so religious that she ended up admitting that, yes, if God told me to, and she's somebody who thinks God puts 1132 on the clock so that she knows to go read, you know, chapter 11, verse 32 of some book. Um, so, yeah, what, you know, what other uh, situation am I going to find myself in if I keep going over to that house? So, you know, I have an extreme example, I think. Um but it, I don't. It I don't know if that's points. too
1: extreme. I mean, the Abraham Isaac story was a huge establishing point of the relationship between me and my father. The religion. Yeah, well, the religion, but also, <laughs> but also, my father and I like that's one of the first. Like, this is a foundational thing that shows how fathers and sons, the relationship between fathers and sons, and the priority arrangement between fathers and sons and fathers and gods and the way that we're supposed to deal with that. And so, so like the point when my dad was a pastor at Stephenville Bible Church and I was five years old or four years old, like he filmed this whole thing that to show at the church that was a recreation of the Abraham and Isaac story. And I played Isaac and I got totally bound up And placed on an actual altar on the top of a cliff with covered in sticks. And like a guy stood above me playing um, Abraham with a big knife about to plunge into me and everything. Like, filmed it. Like, we recreated the entire thing. So, like, I don't know if uh, parents really glomming onto the Abraham Isaac story is is uh is like some outlier i think that is a huge part of any abrahamic religion whether it's judaism or christianity or muslim or whatever like that is part of a the thing that establishes the um parental rights argument and the i have a right to take you out of this world and if god commands me to take you out of this world that is my responsibility as a parent and that is still just the uh, sort of lingering, uh, just general understanding that pretty much all parents that operate in any sort of Abrahamic religion kind of have that as a fallback way of understanding the relationship to be.
0: I wonder if that's ever going to be something that somebody uses in court in order to fight like the abortion bans. <sighs>
1: like yeah God, God told us to only kill children after they're born,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> every example I have of God killing children is all after they've after they're born, <laughs> so I mean, so, sure so no no, no abortion pre birth but you can totally murder that kid right
0: after it's born that but I that's, that's what the Democrats wanted to
1: no no, no that that's what God wants,
0: oh. So the way the gods are democrats, Demi- god is a democrat. Well, see,
1: the democrats want <laughs> the de- the democrats want to want to kill a fetus. And God doesn't kill fetuses. But God mm-hmm. kills babies, lots of them.
0: But I Just read Genesis through way, Leviticus,
1: a you'll find uh, millions of babies that are slaughtered by by the Lord.
0: <laughs> but I thought it was considered living once you have the electrical pulse of a heartbeat.
1: Yeah, yeah. But see, if those kids are actually in what you would consider a promised land from God to your people, then the important thing for you to do is to go invade that land and take those kids and bash them up against the trunks of trees until their heads bleed in. That's yeah. that's like what you're supposed to do.
0: Yeah, that was one of my dad's favorite verses in the Bible <laughs> that like, he would recite I, quite any, often. And
1: anytime, anytime you cross me, son, I can take you out to a tree and just swing you by the ankles until your head gets bashed in. <laughs> it yeah, says it right uh, here.
0: <laughs> except he just carried a pistol with him, so I thought it was going to be much quicker than that.
1: <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Well, <clears throat> yeah, that's all I've got on on parenting. I'm, I hope everyone had a great time listening to this one.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I do want to say um, I have seen before um, certain a certain listener say that they like stood up to their parents' uh, racism at one point. This is a long time ago, but you know those sorts of things that I wouldn't say we like encouraged or anything, but possibly we can help somebody at some point kind of feel like yeah it's not so bad to actually try and you know stick up for um some sort of thing that you believe in yeah
1: and i understand that the authority that parents hold over you is incredibly powerful and it's psychologically demanding and it's like something that you you know it it can take you until your are you know, late 30s and going to therapy to decouple from your personality. So it's not like the thing that drives and motivates most of your other relationships.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that always uh, creeps me out on any of those dating shows when people are like, you know, family, you just gotta, because we recently got Netflix. So we, we watched Love is Blind. Hell yeah. Finally. Hell Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that, that blew me away. I don't know if you have seen the three extra episodes of like the two years reunion. No, I haven't. Not the one where they're all sitting down, but you've got to watch the two year reunion. One, it's messier than the entire season. Two, you learn a whole lot about two people that you thought were like fairly okay. And three, the relationship that, um, I think her name was like Amber with the Barnett guy. Uh-huh. The relationship that she develops with his parents you will you will cringe <laughs> at it. <laughs> Cuz you're like, "Oh no. This is a bad situation."
1: Yeah, I it was one of those things with Nikki that if Nikki had become like endeared to my parents, in, in our initial dating and you know been like really t- become really tight with them and just like loved hanging out at my parents' house and going to dinner with them and something i would have broken up with her <laughs> like like the fact that like my back then yeah back then like the fact that uh my parents weren't weren't too thrilled about her because she came from a broken home um uh and the fact that she didn't she was like didn't have time to deal with my mom's uh like berating of her at different at different times um was like probably the thing that like solidified my eternal love for for her more than
2: anything. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, uh Miho is definitely um she tried to get along with them when she was like visiting and uh doing her internship in Dallas and stuff but yeah, she. I think at one point, pretty early on in our relationship, we were talking about, like, you know, having kids or whatever, and she, she was just like, your mom is not going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at the time, I think I was probably, like, agreeing with her, but if it had been, you know, years prior, I probably would have been like, well, that's ridiculous. Like, of course she needs to be, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I
1: need my mommy there. What are you talking about?
2: <laughs>
0: right. <laughs>
1: Um, oh well, now now it's a really long episode. We'll talk to you next yep. week. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.